This is a platform for voices related to domestic violence. This is a conversation and an invitation to start a conversation about stigmas associated with being an LGBTQ identifying individual and a survivor, which results in challenges in accessing resources. Please meet Marissa, an LGBTQ project coordinator and facilitator of middle school and high school groups. Marissa will introduce herself so she can decide what to share. Marissa, thank you so, so much for being here. Would you do me the honor of um, introducing yourself to the audience? I don't want to speak for you. Um, you're an incredible human, and I would just love to hear about you. Who are you? Oh, thank you. Um, my name is Marissa. My pronouns are she, her, or they, them. Um, I identify as a bisexual woman. And I am currently working as an LGBTQ um, project coordinator, and I help facilitate middle school and high school groups um, at my workplace. And I absolutely love what I do. That's incredible. Can we can we split up what you said into a couple different communities? And and the first one is is how you identify personally, and then how you identify professionally. Um, what what was it like growing up in the lgbt community did you did you feel support did you did you feel comfortable in your own skin um it was definitely a very long journey um i guess compared to kind of when we're experiencing a lot of younger people kind of understanding their identities um i feel like i was a little bit of a late bloomer uh, I always knew that um, my attraction or my fondness for women was a little bit deeper than like gal pal friendships, um, but it definitely was hard to navigate um, as a young person. And um, I'm relatively young, but still, um, I grew up in somewhat of a conservative area. Um, you know, being bisexual wasn't even a thing. I knew about gay and lesbian people, but I didn't know or even think that it was possible um, to be attracted to more than one gender or um, what that might look like. But um, so I also was raised in a church. So of course, had a lot of um, religious guilt associated with my identity. Um, and it wasn't until I graduated from high school that um, I was kind of more online and on the internet and was able to kind of find resources and really put a label to it. But um, I eventually did end up telling my mom, who was very supportive and luckily, and it was kind of funny. She told me that she's always known and that she was just kind of waiting for me um, to tell her. And that's, that's incredible because feeling loved um is is the, the most important thing did you learn either through your church community or through your education about domestic violence as a child did you did you know anything about domestic violence growing up um i really didn't you know the only um real concept i had of domestic violence was um mainly portrayed through media and that was uh, mostly like physical violence that you would see a man perpetrate against like a woman in like a movie or a TV show. And um, I kind of got this idea that 
someone could not be in that kind of relationship um, unless it looked a very specific way, like I was seeing it in media. So you didn't see in in any uh, of those same media um, violence towards being LGBTQ or within the context of an LGBTQ relationship? Correct, yeah. And I think that that um, lack of understanding um, has been something that I've been trying to um, unlearn and also learn through my journey of still kind of processing um, the experiences that I've had or now learning about the experiences of many of the queer people in my life. Right. So it sounds like when you learned about this kind of trauma, it was very um, hetero and gender specific. It was domestic violence was sort of by definition a man versus a woman who are in an intimate relationship together. Yes. And at the time, I really only thought about domestic violence as a um, physical, like, assault. Um, You know, a man hitting a woman, slapping a woman. Um, And I didn't know uh, that domestic violence can look um, and take many different forms. Do you think that that was harmful to your understanding of of just what a healthy relationship for anyone that was involved in intimacy should look like? Do you feel like that hurt what, how you would then go on to develop intimate relationships in your life, thinking that maybe you thought that that just wasn't possible in, in intimate relationships that didn't look like that hetero, you know, cis relationship? Yeah, I would agree with that. I also think that um, just kind of piggybacking off of another thought of how I think that media has also portrayed um, kind of my experiences is also understanding um, like the stereotypes of how bisexual people are portrayed um, in media. And I think that contributed to um, the length of time that I was personally involved in an abusive relationship. Can you talk about what what it was like being in that relationship as just first of all as a human but also as a, as a as someone who identifies as bisexual? Yeah, I was a young college freshman um this that past summer was when I had recently come out. I was still looking for acceptability within my community. I didn't know if I fit in. Um there was a lot of biphobia, either on the internet or from peers. Um, And I was really trying to find connections, trying to make friends. And I ended up getting into a relationship with a much older man um, that ended up being very abusive. And I think it really was one of those situations that you don't know it is domestic violence until you get out of it. And I feel like I made a lot of excuses or justifications along the way. But um, so I was in an abusive relationship for a year and a half. A lot of that abuse looked like being coerced to binge drink and then being forced um, into sexual intercourse, uh, either while I was drunk or passed out. And this also involved a lot of isolation my partner specifically um would 
isolate me um, for fear of me being promiscuous and cheating uh, was his justification. Um, He even told me once that it wasn't only men that he had to worry about. It was now both men and women because of my identity, which was very, very difficult to process as like a recently out queer person. I was involved in a sorority and that made me struggle with thoughts that maybe I was a very perverse person and that perhaps, you know, I was preying upon women because I was having someone else tell me that that's what it was to be a bisexual person, was to be greedy and was to be promiscuous. Um, so that would lead to, you know, control of not letting me go see female friends, um, interact with people in my sorority. Um, definitely a lot of felt isolated, um, which was exacerbated by um, acts of intimidation and threats. So I would often justify his behavior by saying that, you know, he would throw my things, he would punch walls, he would punch doors, but he wasn't hitting me. And so therefore, what I was experiencing wasn't, you know, quote unquote, that bad. I am so sorry. That must have been so scary. Not only were you scared about his actions, but it sounds like you didn't have a vocabulary to talk about what this was. Yeah. It sounds like he really weaponized your bisexuality. How do you think that served as an obstacle to you, A, accepting yourself, and B, naming the abuse and getting help for it? So I think that LGBTQ people are in a unique position of one of the um, acts of domestic violence that can be perpetrated against them is the act of um, outing them. And although I was out to myself and I, you know, was able to finally put a name or a label to my experiences, um, I still wasn't comfortable with everyone knowing, or I was still just trying to figure out my place. Um, again, young person in college and um, I think that was something that is was uniquely weaponized against me, um, you know, threatening to out myself to my dad or um, my friends or to tell my friends that, you know, I wanted to sleep with them because I was attra- I just happened to be attracted to women. So I think that that is a unique characteristic that queer people experience in domestic violence relationships. It's not unlike immigrants, you know, weaponizing someone's Mm. immigration status um, in in terms of just finding bridges and and similarities. That that must have been very terrifying that you didn't have control over your own narrative, your your own identity. Mm -hmm. What got you to, to finally have the vocabulary of bisexuality? How did you move from, I know that I feel about women more than gal pal, to I can identify this as definitively bisexuality? That's a really good question. So when, actually, if I can refer back to the story of my mom, um, when I uh, came out to my mom, she said, you know, you thought you wanted to marry Jasmine and you wanted to marry Aladdin. Like, so she knew, but... um, (laughs) That's amazing. (laughs) <laughs> um, but 
it really wasn't until I was in high school and I became very close to one of my female classmates um, and we developed a pretty strong bond um, that was covert. It was something that was secretive um, and that she was also kind of figuring out at the time. Um, and that was a relationship that um, never became public, never really went anywhere, but it really was kind of an awakening for me that, um, you know, cause I had crushes on boys. Um, but finally I was feeling a very deep, um, connection to another woman in a way that I wasn't feeling, um, with my other girlfriends. Um, and I think that was definitely a turning point, um, for me. And then, um, it was kind of, uh, scary to kind of realize those feelings at the very end of my high school experience and then um, be dropped into college, which is a very um, different experience than high school. You have a lot more freedom and a lot more opportunities to socialize. And um, in a way, it was kind of overwhelming, but exciting at the same time. Right. I'm sure that at any moment there it was, you know, different, different parts relief to have a name for it. Um, and also, you know, like you're saying, a little terrifying. I, I, this is an incredibly naive question. Can you help me understand where people who identify as bisexual sort of fit in the LGBTQ community? There's something very sort of distinct, but you know, if you are same-sex attracted, you have something in common between women who are attracted to other women and men who are attracted to other men, right? Yeah. Where where does bisexuality fit in the queer community? You know, do, where do you find your companionship? Is there an isolation even within the queer community because because the foundation of the queer community to everyone else was lesbians and gays? Am I, am, I, am I asking a question that you feel like you can answer? Yeah, this is actually a fantastic question. And um, in preparation for this interview, I was doing a little research on kind of what the, yeah, what the prevalence is of bisexuality. And um, I don't have the source in front of me, but I did find several reports that now about 60% of the people who fit under the LGBTQ umbrella do identify as either pansexual or bisexual. And that also include gender non-conforming and transgender people. So to hear that bisexual people make up a large majority of the community was really surprising for me because you um, don't see us as often. And that is something else that I've been researching in is that although there are more bisexual people out there, um, they are less likely to come out um, as bisexual to friends, to families, um, to co-workers. And I think partially um, that is because that a lot of us can choose uh, to be straight passing if we wish. Um, and I think that is where there is some discourse within the LGBTQ community. I had mentioned, um, you know, seeing biphobia uh, online. And that doesn't only just come from um, heterosexual or straight people, um, you know, the belief that either bisexual people are um, promiscuous, they're greedy, they're confused, it's a phase. Uh, some of those sentiments 
actually also come from the LGBTQ community. And it is something that a lot of queer activists um, are actively fighting against and trying to disseminate, you know, more accurate information. So that was something really fascinating to find is that, you know, there are so many of us, but a lot of us choose not to come out. Do you think that that's from fear? Do you think that that's from it's just easier to be more mainstream or do you think that there's a part that of, of there's there's a population of bisexual people who don't consider bisexuality as a dominant identity i think some of it does come from fear i think the stigmas that bisexual people face you know not only from straight people but also from the queer community um play a part in it I think that there are a lot of bisexual people who, like I said, can choose to be in, you know, quote unquote, straight passing relationships. So, you know, two people of opposite genders, and then therefore they don't, you know, feel the need to express their identity. But it's something that I really want to kind of look into and really kind of tease apart what those barriers might be for people to come up. So can we just go back for a minute to the to the um, the, uh, the relationship that you identify as clearly abusive? Do you think that the obstacles to you getting help were more rooted in your um, sexual identity or in just not having learned about domestic violence as anything other than physical violence which do you think was the the bigger obstacle i think that both definitely did i felt a lot of shame i felt a lot of stigma you know i think it's fairly common for um some survivors of domestic violence to also kind of reflect upon um their behaviors and their actions and you know what did i you know quote unquote do to deserve this and for me a lot of that was shame and stigma related to my sexuality you know checking my phone because even if it was a text message from a sorority sister you know that was a potential person I could be attracted to because they, you know, simply existed. But I think a big, big part of it is that I had never had education. No one had ever talked to me about what domestic violence can look like. I didn't know until a year after this relationship that coercing someone into um, using substances or drinking um, is domestic violence. Um, there was a lot of things that I didn't know even recently after leaving that relationship. Um, and I think it is a even bigger disservice to LGBTQ people, um, who definitely don't get any kind of, you know, sex ed or relationship, um, healthy relationship, um, advice. That is, tr is absolutely tragic. Looking back, were you more concerned about the stigma because you said the word stigma on this and this series is all about the t the, the title is sh shouting from the rooftops right like how do we bring domestic violence from behind closed doors what disservice have we done to ourselves by calling it domestic like there was there was that movement recently about shout your abortion right mm -hmm. like, let's say the word abortion a billion times so that 
so that we can use this word and it doesn't attach to, to all of all of this darkness. Um, were you, do you think, more worried about the stigma of being a survivor of domestic violence or a bisexual survivor of domestic violence? That's a good question. I think that primarily um, when I was leaving, I was more worried about being um, just a survivor of domestic violence. But in my recovery from that relationship, I had to do a lot of reflection and a lot of self-love and unlearning um, the stigmas about bisexual people that were put on to me um, because I did internalize a lot of that. And coming out of the relationship, I was more ashamed to have had asked for help and just, you know, trying to leave and what that looked like. But definitely in the aftermath, there was a lot of unlearning, a lot of the internalized biphobia and homophobia that I was subjected to. I'm so sorry. And I am so proud of you for, for what you've done with this. Um, and, 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 and if you don't mind, I would like to pivot to, to what you wish that there was for you because it, 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 you are now doing the work of, of, I assume, what you would say, and, and I don't want to um, speak for you, but is what you're doing what you wish that there was for you? Yeah. Um, so I also teach um, comprehensive and queer sexual education. I think that that is a huge piece of the puzzle that we're missing. First of all, we don't even have comprehensive sex education for many, you know, heterosexual students. But even more, um, the statistics show that LGBTQ youth are at a disproportionate rate of experiencing domestic violence um, and intimate partner violence. And um, I think it's so important to talk about not only like healthy relationships, but what domestic violence looks like. And kind of, as you said, I feel like um, it's, you know, become a bad word that we don't like to talk about or it happens to other people and it doesn't happen to us. Um, but we need people to talk about um, what those warning signs look like, what a controlling partner looks like, um, you know, how alcohol and sex um, can be used in a domestic violence um, kind of relationship. And I think that that would really make a big difference. And to include LGBTQ youth along the way, I think would um, make a huge, huge impact. What, based on your work with youth, when, when should we start talking about this with our kids? And this is completely self-serving because I have four kids and I would like to know how, first of all, when I should start talking about this, but also what resources there are to make sure that that the weight of normalizing identities does not rest on the people who are being marginalized. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I think that I give children a lot of credit. I think, um, you know, basically as soon as they are able to have conversations, we can start talking about these things. And um, I know it's a common talking point to uh, you know, say, how do I explain to my children, you know, two women loving each other? Um, but really, children understand love. Children understand what it's like to care about another person. 
Um, I really think even as young as kindergarten, we can start having conversations um, about what happy and healthy relationships look like. And as they kind of start getting older, um, we don't have to introduce them to, um, you know, definitions of the LGBTQ acronym or anything like that, but we can talk about healthy boundaries and um, we can talk about what, you know, healthy families look like. Uh, and I really don't think that, you know, children are ever too young to, um, you know, learn or experience, um, you know, the LGBTQ people in their lives. When you work with kids who are under the best of circumstances struggling with identity, mm -hmm. um, how do you separate for them the different identities that they have in order to teach them or confirm their value to themselves and then ultimately to other people? Yeah. That's a great question. I tell, um, you know, all my students that they are very loved, they are very valid, and that it is okay to not have everything figured out just yet. And that there are people in their lives who um, can be there along the way while they figure it out. Um, we can help, we can support from the sidelines, but just know that you know, being human is to experience a lot of emotions, but I think most importantly, um, it is to love and it is to break through the challenges that are presented to us. And especially for my youth that have intersectional identities. So for example, that, you know, a queer youth of color, that they are going to experience, unfortunately, a lot more hardships, but that there will always be someone in their corner for them. And we really try to kind of push those resources as best that we can and just know that they're not alone. And although it, it can feel very isolating. Any, any, anything that makes kids feel different um, yeah. can be isolating. Do you feel like the stronger influence is from themselves or it, it like so perceived the fear of potential demonization is kind of a wrong word, but you know, like rejection mm -hmm. um, from their communities or, or actual ostracization by their communities. This is a really good question. And I think it does kind of go back to what you were saying about like, when do we start talking about LGBTQ people? And I feel like if they if these youth are not given the opportunity to have space to explore their identities and to question, you know, either their sexuality, their gender identity, there can be a lot of internalized shame and internalized stigma towards that. But I think we're also in a unique position that we are seeing the world changing in many positive ways. And I think that a lot of youth are finding safe communities, whether in person or kind of mainly online, you know, I'm seeing it a lot on like TikTok and Twitter. And I think that that is something that is very unique to our current generation of LGBTQ youth. And that's not to say that, of course, a lot of them also still don't learn the stigma, you know, from their households, whether it be from their parents, their 
um, religious organization, um, or just the way that society still treats a lot of, you know, LGBTQ youth. And I think we don't give them enough credit to understand and validate their own identities. I, I mean, I can't agree you know, with you more. I think that the, you know, the most important thing that we do as a community is, is start the conversation. Um, I don't think that we ever, as humans, that's kind of dangerous to think that, you know, we were, we're at some point we're going to have it all figured out, but to say, we love you for the process. Um, when yeah. you, when you, you, you talked about intersectionality and I think that that's really important because of all of the layers, when, when you, when you think about the, the concept of intersectionality, is the conversation that we're having as a society helpful to the combining into one person, in, in, in the actual living of intersectionality and not just this wonderful word that we've come up with to sort of, you know, check mm-hmm. some boxes? How do we, how do we help LGBTQ youth live intersectionally? Yeah, I think that it is so important to recognize the different identities that make up someone who lives with intersectional identities and to recognize the unique struggles that might come with each different identity. Because if I have a queer youth of color as compared to a a white youth, um, queer youth, um, they're going to have very different experiences. They will also share similar experiences, but they will still have those unique experiences. And I think it is so important to um, kind of understand what those needs might be um, and find the best support for those students. When you work with people who have already survived domestic violence, what specific, what tools do you wish that you had to help you do your job? Um, I'm not sure if this is the answer you're looking for, but if I could shout to the rooftops, like one big one, it would be, um, accessible mental health treatment and recovery programs. I feel as if a lot of the students that I interact with who need additional or professional support aren't able to access it, whether it's financially, transportation, lack of resources. And I think that that is the biggest, one of the biggest disservices that exists kind of in our society today is not being able to get these people, get these youth to the resources that they might really need. And that is something that's really frustrating because unfortunately it is something that is out of my control. What would help? So is it, is it a matter of finding those resources? Is it a matter of creating those resources? What's, what's missing? The actual resources or the connection? I think, um, man, I wish I knew the answer. I think part of it is um, the creation of these resources. I think that a lot of it is um, systemic change also. However, I think that I'm a big believer in empowerment through education. I think that if we improved our health class curriculums and we talked about healthy relationships and we included queer youth into the conversation, I think that would make a big difference. I think that even just um, becoming a little bit more accepting 
as a society would also make a big difference and um, you know, make a difference for that one student who wants to talk about an experience, but doesn't feel like they have a person in their life too. But, um, you know, for example, if I can share, uh, I had a student who went to school and one of their teachers had the inclusive pride flag in their classroom and they immediately felt such a deeper connection and a trust with this teacher. And I think that just such a simple gesture like that can make a huge difference and signify to other youth um, that this is a safe space for them. Um, and that's what I really kind of believe is that we need to be making space for these youth kind of at an individual level. Um, but there also is a big need for reform um, on kind of a, a systemic level and how we get resources to these people. Is there a uh, training that that teachers do, or or did that did that student just get really lucky that that she he they had someone who just happened to want to communicate that? So so for instance, is there is there a need for institutional training of, of teachers? to create those spaces and yes. social workers, for instance. Yes. I think that there are really great opportunities for, um, you know, schools to take, um, to become more LGBTQ friendly and to become affirming spaces. Um, for example, um, the Kenneth Young Center, they provide inclusion kits. Um, and that's something where teachers will attend a um, kind of a seminar on LGBTQ, kind of an LGBTQ 101. It's very non-judgmental. And then um, the teachers are able to take home um, an inclusion kit with things like the flag um, and pronoun buttons, um, pins, <sighs> things like that. Um, that again, I think that even just the smallest effort can make such a huge difference in some of these youth lives. It, it sounds like what you're saying is that the, the biggest barrier to LGBTQ youth who are either going through um, a, a domestic violence related trauma or have already experienced a domestic violence related trauma is for them to get help is just knowing where to go where they can be themselves and and say these words yeah yeah i mean that's a, that's a big enough problem for adults um but if you yeah. are particularly worried that you're not going to be accepted also for that for for, for your sexual identity knowing that affirmative things that we could possibly do is intentionally create spaces um, where they know that they can, you know, be loved. I mean, I'm yeah. sure that's true for anything that doesn't, that doesn't really distinguish necessarily the domestic violence part, but do you, have you worked with youth who have experienced trauma specifically as a result of their sexual identity? Yes. And, I think that that is, again, why it is so important 
um, to have this education. So in my specific instance, it was a um, same gender couple. And um, for the student, it was hard for them to um, kind of come to terms with the fact that their relationship was um, abusive because uh, I feel like particularly for same gendered couples, or I think that gender does play a role in how people perceive domestic violence. Um, It can be very confusing for queer youth um, because I feel as if, um, you know, femme or women presenting queer people might be seen as, you know, not capable of uh, being perpetrators. Um, And on the reverse side, um, if you have more masculine or male presenting queer youth, um, often they they feel as if they will not be taken seriously as a survivor of domestic violence. Um, and I, so I think that that is something that we need to talk about in our conversations regarding domestic violence is um, kind of that gender component, um, because I feel like that also brings a lot of shame and a lot of stigma um, with those youth who are in those kinds of relationships. How do you take care of you as an advocate? How do you make sure that this is work that you can sustain for yourself? Um, I'm luckily in a position where, um, you know, I find my job very fulfilling. And I think that that is something that I am very eternally grateful for. I hold a lot of gratitude for that. But yeah, as you said, I can only do my job you know, if I'm taking care of myself, um, I love alone time. <laughs> That's like a big thing for me. Um, <laughs> I so I really do. I enjoy my alone time. Um, I enjoy, you know, being out in nature and taking really time for myself. Um, to love myself. I think that there was a time after I left my relationship where it was hard for me um, to be alone and to be a singular person. Um, But I think that that is the greatest gift of all that I've um, received from this whole experience is the enjoyment of like being one with myself. And I think that that is something that a lot of queer people struggle with. I feel like um, for many of us, we spend a lot of time trying to be Uh, or act like other people um, so we can fit in. And I think the best way that I take care of myself is like being as authentic to myself as I, as I can be. Introspection and honesty are, are really difficult muscles to build. Um, Yes. I I think. And the, um, the accepting that there is accepting yourself is going to hurt the the process of accepting yourself will mean loneliness sometimes will mean finding things about yourself that you wish were different um that you can't change without becoming somebody else um that is really hard work that i think more adults need to do in front of children um to help children say, I don't need to be perfect to be lovable. Yes. Um, how do we do a better job of communicating that it's, it is whoever you are that makes you lovable? 
Yes. I think that, um, especially now we live in a social media age, I feel like a lot of young people um, almost feel like they need to meet certain metrics um, in order to be accepted, in order to be valid, um, in order to be loved. And that's what I try to really stress is just unconditional love. You are here. You deserve to be loved and respected and affirmed. And, um, and although there may be people who don't agree with that sentiment or find that there's something wrong with you, I would tell those youth that, you know, being radically themselves, you know, if it is, of course, safe for them, is one of the greatest acts of, like, self-love and kind of defiance to society that I can think of. And I think it's important for us as, like, adults or teachers, facilitators, social workers, really just to make space, I think, is the biggest one. Make space and, and allow them to have a voice as well. Because I feel like sometimes we as adults want the best for young people. And so we kind of want to solve all their problems. But I really say, trust them, trust the process and give them space to be who they are while unconditionally loving and accepting them. What advice would you give either because you wish you had it or, or because of, the, you know, as a result of, of all the things that make you you, what advice would you give to someone getting into a relationship, starting a relationship Yeah, to make sure that they stay healthy in that relationship? I would say the most important person um, in your life should be you. And that your feelings, your health, your well-being um, should always kind of come first and be considered um, whenever your gut kind of tells you that something might be wrong. Um, and that it's best to be honest and to be true to yourself um, than it is to try to please people um, or try to fit in or stay somewhere where you feel uncomfortable. Um, I think that a lot of young people uh, are put or find themselves in uncomfortable situations um, because they are looking for acceptance or um, validation, whatever it might be. Um, but really tell them that they have everything within themselves that they will ever need and they just might need support or um, resources to kind of facilitate that, but that they are a lot more strong than they know. So now is the part of the interview where I cry hysterically because that is what I say to my kids. There are going to be so many things that they are going to be exposed to that either they're not ready for or that they don't want to be exposed to but mm -hmm. that they already have inside them uh, everything that they will need to navigate those situations and the thought that that yes. is being communicated to everybody um, is, is just absolutely heartbreaking. It's just, um, you know, wh where you were born, where, you know, who, what family you were born into. 
what can we do as people who care to elevate your voice and the people that you work with? What can we do intentionally to 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 pull the megaphone um, up to, to your community? Yes. Thank you. Yeah, I definitely wanted to kind of end um, on a more kind of positive note and um, just reiterate that although the LGBTQ community really experiences and faces a lot of challenges and a lot of struggles, and especially, again, with those intersectional identities that exist with under the LGBTQ umbrella, and although we do experience, you know, prevalence rates of domestic violence, of negative health outcomes, it is really and truly LGBTQ activists um, and black and brown LGBTQ activists who are really leading the charge in making a difference when it comes to healthy relationship reforms in schools, pushing for uh, queer sex ed legislation. And I really would love for our allies to make space for queer people and um, any platform that they have, please let them speak, I think really is the most important to use that allyship in a way to elevate the queer people who are putting in a lot of work to try to, you know, better our situations. And I think that that is kind of the most important is a lot of them are already doing the work and we just need to let them be heard. I pledge here to create those spaces intentionally. I can't thank you enough for doing this today. Uh, I can't thank you enough for the work that you do in your community. It was a pleasure um, knowing you, uh, getting meeting you in this way. Um, and I really look forward to all of the help that I can be um, to you in the future. Thank you so much. We really appreciate um, you all making the time and the space for us. Um, and we really appreciate it. You've been absolutely wonderful. Marissa identifies as a bisexual individual and is a survivor. Marissa's work and experiences are important. The lack of representation and education surrounding safely navigating relationships as an LGBTQ plus identifying individual created challenges in recognizing the dangers in her own relationship and stigmas that were placed on her. Marissa now educates children in sexual education including queer education, which prevents others from having the lack of information that she had. The stigmas that work against every survivor are real and prevent survivors from identifying as survivors and getting the help they need when they need it. This is a space for survivors to use their voices against these stigmas. We are collecting as many voices as possible and not any one of our guests is the sole voice of their community please let us know if you would like to contribute to the conversation.